from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. This week, we've passed the deadline for bills to be introduced in the House of Delegates this session, and we're approaching that cutoff in the Senate on Monday. Join me to talk about this week's legislative action are Ryan Quinn of the Charleston Gazette-Mail and Taylor Stuck of the Huntington Herald-Dispatch. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Uh, you know, the Senate opened this morning's, uh, this morning's session by honoring Gold Star mothers. And these, of course, are mothers who have lost military sons and daughters in combat. And that was um, a very moving and beautiful way to start Valentine's Day. And, and then when they got down to the business of what was on third calendar or third reading on the, on the calendar today, uh, they, they got to Senate Bill 583, and this is creating a program to further develop renewable energy, solar energy. Uh, we have a clip of this uh, morning's uh, discussions, remarks before the vote on that bill. We will first hear Chair of the Energy, Industry, and Mining Committee, Senator Randy Smith. Then we'll hear Senator Mike Woeful, Democrat of Cabell County, and then Senator Charles Clements, Republican of Wetzel County. History is being made today. Uh, I believe this is the first solar bill ever brought forth on the Senate floor, and I can guarantee it's the first one ever brought forth by a coal miner. So with that being said, the purpose of this bill is to encourage the development of solar generating facilities to sell electric, electricity to retail customers in the state. It does this by altering the power of the Public Service Commission with a new code section and create a program named Renewable Energy Facilities Program. This is not in any way uh, going to be a negative thing for our fossil fuel industry, but what it does, it opens the door to Fortune 500 companies who have have, have closed the door to having new locations, new jobs, bring industry into our state because we have zero solar footprint. So it's going to allow us to have growth. Many of today's companies are going green and demand a different product than cold or natural gas. We have been blessed in West Virginia with an abundance of those natural resources, and we continue to sell those into the market. We need to add solar to our inventory of products that we sell. West Virginia needs to be known as the energy state. That bill easily passed the Senate uh, this morning and now goes on to the House. And uh, it, it's a bill that um, just a few years ago would have been unthinkable in this very uh, uh, coal-dominated uh, uh, economy that we have. Um, and so again, it goes over to the House now. Ryan, uh, the charter schools policy from the school board was released this week. Tell us about that. 
Well, I, I can't tell you too many details about it because it was released at uh, 8.15 uh, Wednesday morning, which was right before the meeting began. I guess the meeting began at, at, uh, at uh, 9 a.m. Uh, and, and The regularly <laughs> scheduled school board the meeting. The state school board yeah. meeting began when they were going to vote to approve that, that policy. So there wasn't a lot of time to actually review what's in this final proposal that's now been approved by the state board. But we did get some glimpses of what's in it um, from the, uh, the presentations of uh, officials for the Department of Education. Uh, the, uh, in the initial proposal, there was a ban on virtual charter schools, which have uh, much less uh, evidence for uh, being good for kids. It's, it's rather mixed, the evidence uh, for uh, charter schools having any sort of beneficial uh, outcomes for children uh, when you look at brick and mortar charter schools, but virtual charter schools, it's been very negative. And we see that that uh, ban on fully online charter schools has made it into the final policy. I think the, the way that they describe it in the policy is they say that uh, no charter school can offer more than 50% of its instruction online. Um, and, and from other things that we've heard from department officials, it, it pretty much uh, reflects uh, in many, in actually most cases, the law that was passed uh, during last year's session uh, it, the charter school provision was part of the big controversial omnibus uh, education bill. And uh, most of the provisions come directly from that law, uh, again, with some changes that the state board has made, some additions, including that ban on uh, full-time virtual charter schools. Well, well, remind us about that, uh, what was passed regarding the charter schools. Only so many, every so many years. Yeah. Um, who, who is the overseeing body? Remind us what, what, what was passed this summer. Okay, and so I can, I can uh, it, it was uh, actually uh, last year uh, at, at the end of uh, last year's session, which went into <laughs> the summer, uh, that the omnibus that had spawned West Virginia's second teacher strike in two years uh, uh, was, was actually finally passed, and uh, that law set up this, this, uh, this process in which, uh, you know, you have a charter school applicant, which could only be a nonprofit, uh, including the colleges of, uh, the public colleges of West Virginia. Uh, they submit their application to create a charter school to the County Board of Education, uh, in which that charter school is going to operate, and then the County Board technically has uh, final approval on whether that charter school opens or not, but there's a lot of nuance to that and it's a very complicated process. The, the county board can't just say, hey, uh, we don't like charter schools, uh, we've got a you know, philosophical objection to them. No, they have to go through a lot of hoops to say, you know, we don't think this is best for our county uh, and so we're not going to approve that. And if they mess up, or they miss deadlines for doing certain things, there's automatic provisions within that law that say, well, you screwed up, so guess what? The charter school is automatically approved to operate in your county. And of course, every student that leaves the public school system go to the charter school. Public school system loses that money. Mm -hmm. The charter school gains it because their funding, just like the public school's funding, is based upon enrollment of students. Now, of course, the state board was forced by that law to make regulations, 
Uh, they chose not to use their constitutional power to fight that order from the legislature. Uh, and we still have to do the work of analyzing those regulations that were put out this week to see exactly how much it diverges from the law. But from what we've heard, not very much. But th theoretically, they are accepting, they're open to accept applications now. Well, so there's another step we've got to have the county school boards, which uh, there's, there's no question whether they can really fight this. Uh, the, uh, they, they don't have that same sort of constitutional standing as the state board, so it seems like they're now forced to pass their own policies. Now, the state board policy includes a draft policy that county boards can use uh, if they don't want to go through the work of developing their own, but uh, now we're going to see and all, all 55 counties have to pass their own uh, policies. And then we're going to see uh, the applications, if people are interested in creating these things, start to roll in for charter schools. And you can have three until, I believe, July 1st of 2023. And then at that date, you can have three more charter schools. So uh, it's only three charter schools allowed statewide until July 1, 2023. And, and what was your sense at the, at the meeting talking to uh, members of the school board, if you did get a chance to talk to them, uh, are, are they pleased with the, the policy that they voted on? The, the only person to vote against the policy out of the nine board members was Deborah Sullivan. Uh, and even she said that she thought that the, the policy itself uh, was basically the best attempt at creating a charter school policy. Uh, she said it reflected the latest national research but she was pretty much opposed to the whole idea of charter schools. And I think that that's probably the case, even though they didn't vote against it, for some of these other state board members as well. Remember, they were on the state board, most of them, before the legislature passed the law forcing the state to adopt charter schools. They could have done that on their own through state board policy. It was the legislature's action that forced the state board's hand, and I'm supposing, well, uh, the state board president has said that he didn't want to fight over this issue. Uh, and so the state board came to uh, agreement on this policy and it, they, it seems like they felt that this was the best hand that they could, be, could have been dealt uh, with a legislature that wanted to implement these things. Super, thanks Ron, we appreciate it. We are now going to, to introduce Brad McElhaney of West Virginia Metro News, who is arriving a little bit tardy, but <laughs> we are happy kind of to I was see reading you. bills out loud. No, actually, you, you, you texted me and you told me that you were waiting at the governor's office. I mean, what, what's so, going on at this late hour? Well, we've all had quite a week, but so has Governor Jim Justice. And what happened to him was largely off-site. Uh, as you know, the governor is a basketball coach, too. Uh, he coaches Greenbrier East High School girls, and there was a game this week that, that that's a rivalry. It's very emotional anyway, um, but there was a game this week that devolved into chaos, and uh, players left the bench, police got involved. Um, there were coaches, not not Justice himself, who were uh, involved somehow. That's that's still being sorted out in the public eye, but. What really drew the news this week was the governor's comments after, and, and there was a Beckley sports reporter who was just trying to get reaction and, and make sense of it all, uh, asked the governor right after that game what his impression was. And 
unfortunately, the governor of the state of West Virginia, who is also a basketball coach, uh, described the opposing team largely as thugs. And it, it, was, it has not been clear all week whether he meant the coaches, the fans, the players, who are high school girls, um, but it seemed that he meant all of them. So because he is also the governor, this exploded into the public conversation. There have been floor speeches in the House of Delegates with people who've been very upset at that language to describe these girls. Uh, and and a, a racial undertone of the whole thing because uh, thugs can be a pejorative for certain sectors of our society. Um, so my conversation with the governor was a series of uh, interviews with, with mostly with television stations. I got in a little late and said, can I get in too? Uh, but the setup was he was showing clips of the game over in the governor's mansion, uh, trying to give a visual of what happened, which I think is helpful. I haven't seen that yet. Um, but you can tell that it was a difficult situation. And then at the end of that, he gave his impression. And, and here's how I would boil it down. Uh, he, he regrets the language. He did not know, he says, until now that there was a racial connotation to that word. Uh, and, and that's a reaction that, that, frankly, we've gotten from some people that didn't realize. Um, but he, he doesn't seem to regret the misgivings he, he spoke of in the moment because he thought there was misbehavior. Um, and he, I said, given some thought, knowing that you are both a coach and a governor whose language carries weight, do you, do you have regrets about any of the way you approach this? Uh, have you thought about how the governor's words matter? And he said, what I heard him say is that he would have regretted it if he had not objected at all. Uh, that, that he, as carrying the position as coach and as governor, he says that he just couldn't let it slide, seeing the behavior he saw and perceiving it the way he perceived. Uh, so this is going to be on television stations. I'm describing it to our viewers and listeners, and, and we're going to have a story at Metro News, and I'll, I'll post all of his comments to me. Uh, but, you know, what I wonder is, these conversations are two-sided. There's a sender and a receiver. And, and he has had a lot of time to think about his message. But now I wonder, again, on the receiver end, how is it going to be perceived? Have we heard anything, um, a, a follow-up from um, folks at Woodrow Wilson High School, the coaches, the, any, any team members? Have they talked uh, additionally about what happened that night? You know, um, I, I have not heard direct comments from them. The, the, some of the players were uh, ejected and then are serving two game suspensions. And that is because they left the bench when this fracas broke out. Uh, so leaving the bench meant they were ejected and then the suspensions are automatic, as I understand it, thereafter. Um, one of the coaches has hired a lawyer. Uh, this was an assistant coach. He, he, according to coverage in the Beckley newspaper and outlets like the Washington Post, uh, returned to practice with his arm in a sling. Um, my understanding is his lawyer has advised him not to talk about this yet. So I don't think this is the end of the story. Mm -hmm. 
Brad, thank you so much. Uh, Taylor, let's, let's get an update uh, from you on some really important legislation, the, the foster care bills. Let's first start uh, with uh, House Bill 4092. We have um, a clip from Delegate Jeffrey Pack, uh, and, and these were earlier this week, just after the House Finance Committee had passed that bill unanimously out to the House floor. We'll take a listen. Something so many of us on both sides of the aisle had devoted a significant amount of time to for more than a, a year. We've met with families, we've talked to judges, spoken with experts in the field. We've heard immensely personal stories. We've looked into the eyes of some of our state's most vulnerable children and their families. We've felt their pain. We've promised to make a positive change for them. I am so proud of the work that we've all put in on these bills. I thank every member of this body, every agency representative who has provided input, and every family who has spoken out on the need for reform. Again, Taylor, this is a big, big bill, the Foster Care 4092. Tell us the components and where that bill is now. Yeah, so actually it was read for the first time on the floor this morning. So we are on the way to getting it passed. Um, and as you said, it was passed unanimously by the Finance Committee. And I think that probably indicates that we're, you know, clear ahead for passage. Um, so it does a handful of things. Um, it creates a bill of rights for both foster children um, and then also foster parents, kinship caregivers, and then also adoptive parents. Um, and it just kind of spells out what, what their rights are, what they, you know, for a foster child, they have the right to remain close to their siblings. They have the right to have um, a bank account. They have the right to be able to call their biological parents if that's something that they choose. Um, parents have the right, foster parents have the right to intervene in court with the abuse and neglect case. Maybe they have, maybe their child has told them something about their situation and, you know, they want the court to know about it. Um, and so these are things, you know, to, to make sure that children and families know what they can do. That's something that I think families were feeling a little lost on. Um, and then those rights can be investigated by the new ombudsman that was created, the position was created last session in the other foster care reform bill. So she will take complaints if someone, if a child says, I, my foster family didn't let me call my mom, my bio mom, um, they can tell the ombudsman and she can investigate it and it can be enforced. It's an enforceable thing um, as well. Um, it also, um, addresses guardian ad litems, which are representation for foster children in abuse and neglect cases. This is the person that is their lawyer. They represent the best interest of that child. And um, foster families had said that they were not being interviewed. They weren't interviewing children. They weren't meeting with the children that they represent. Um, so this ensures that the report the guardian turns into the judge, which the judge uses to make its final decision whether to terminate a parental right. I mean, this is a really, really big life-altering decision for many people. So they need a lot of information. And that report is seen by a foster family and they sign off on it and say, yes, they did meet with me. 
they did meet with my child and then you can turn it into the um, the court. It just sounds like, Taylor, that, that a lot of these were um, were originally brought up last year yeah. and it um, I, I would think that advocates are are largely very happy as to what's happening in this bill. Yeah, I think they are. And the another thing they're really happy about is they increase the payments. That's why it had to go mm -hmm. to the finance committee. Um, it originally wasn't sent there, but it had to be because the health committee wanted to increase payments for these these families that are taking care of children. I mean, they could be taking care of five children on addition to their own biological children. Um, so it, this raised the, the reimbursement that they will get to from $600 a month to $900 a month. That's $300 more to provide services, clothing, all kinds of things that children need to thrive. And, and tell me where it goes from here. Yeah, so it will, um, Monday will be second reading. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully they, there's the right to amend the bill in second reading, so it might change a little bit depending um, on who else sees it. A lot of people have already seen it and had a chance to amend it, so that may not happen. Um, and then third reading would be fr uh, Tuesday and could be sent over to the Senate for them to take a look at it. Okay, and there's a second um, uh, foster care bill I wanted to get to. We only have about a, a minute or yeah. so left. Um, and that has to do with speeding up certain adoptions. Yeah, so this, it's really quick bill. I mean, it's just simple. It, there was a, you had to wait 45 days since when, um, when parental rights were terminated before you could adopt. Well, that gets rid of that 45 day waiting period. You still have to live with your adoptive parents for, I think it's six months before you, that process is finalized, but it takes away that extra time. Um, so it speeds that up and then it also uh, makes it so you, the adoption process can happen in the child's original, originating county. So wherever their case originated, say it was Cabell County, and they're being adopted by Kanawha County parents, if they want it to be done in Cabell County, the adoption, it can happen there. And, and where is that bill? Um, that bill has passed <laughs> we can get back to yeah. that on Monday. We'll yeah. have to find out where that bill is. Thank you all so much. Uh, you know, some really in-depth reporting on the, the charter schools, the foster care, and this ongoing situation with the governor. We really appreciate it. Ryan Quinn, Taylor Stuck, Brad McElhaney. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you. And one last look back at this week to a performance by visiting students from West Virginia School for the Deaf and Blind. The school has helped more than 4,800 students since its founding in 1870. Randy Yowie reports. With their music, voices, and their hands, the West Virginia School for the Deaf and Blind Choir captured the hearts of the entire House chamber. The governor's and the legislative budgets both include about $14.5 million to run the school this next fiscal year. At their Romney, West Virginia campus, and with outreach programs statewide, the school serves more than 1,100 visually and or orally challenged children. We offer a bunch of very, very good classes. Um, that can you know really help our kids become independent and pillars of our community. Uh, we have a ton of technology for our kids. We've got the best staff and the best kids, honestly. Delegate Ruth Rowan's grandson attends the school, located right in her Hampshire County district. 
Rowan explains that along with the standard classes, group sports, and arts activities, the 112 in-school students each have an IEP, an individual education plan. So every child is special, every child has special needs, and the school there takes care of those children. The career courses for students to venture out those country roads include agriculture and business education, carpentry, radio broadcasting, and IT and computer skills, all with a solid plan for job placement. We have a Meet Your Counselor Day every fall where the counselors from all across the state come in so that our students can meet them and develop that network so when they go home they can help them find job placement while they're in Romney. Sometimes they work on campus. Delegate Rowan is working for passage of House Bill 4414. The bill gives every West Virginia parent of a newborn to five-year-old hearing impaired child an unbiased expert assessment on whatever early language development method best suits that child, be it American Sign Language, a new hearing technology, or a combination. If you are partial to ASL, you're partial that way, or if you're uh, partial uh, to uh, cochlear implants or hearing aids, you may be biased that way. So my goal is to get a completely unbiased panel to help our parents to make the right decisions for their children. The bill has passed the House and is now in the Senate Education Committee. Emotions swelled when choir members raised the state flag during the final Country Roads verse. The entire House chamber, taking pride in West Virginia and its school for the deaf and blind. I'm Randy Yoey for the Legislature Today. Monday on the Legislature Today, celebrations here at the Capitol of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, happy Valentine's Day as we leave you with a final song by students from West Virginia School for the Deaf and Blind. Have a good weekend.